Welcome, Richard. Um, I muted Hi. myself. <laughs> ah! <laughs> it is. It is. This is what we like. This is uh, what we like. Yes. Bloop is real. Uh. Welcome to the Backroom Stuff Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Backroom Stuff Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Hull FC Foundation's Head of Sport, Health and Wellbeing, Richard Tate. Welcome, Richard. Hey, Tommy, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Thank you for coming on and giving us an insight into what you do at the foundation. No, cheers, mate. Thanks for um, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. To start with, why don't you give us a little short elevator pitch job description of what exactly it is you do at the foundation? The short version. Yeah, the short version. Yeah, the short version. Um, so, yeah, as you, as you said, my, my fancy title is the head of sport, health and wellbeing. But basically it means I oversee a lot of the sports projects that are delivered in schools in primary and secondary, which, as you can imagine, at this moment in time is quite tough. But the other side of the job, and it's a recent side of it, is the, the health and wellbeing, where we're linking in with the NHS Hull CCG, Hull and East Yorkshire Mind, uh, and Humber Coast and Vale to offer some projects to uh, to you know a variety of people, um, especially during this lockdown, different disability groups, gender groups, age ranges, and things like that, to make sure that they're, they're physically and mentally keeping fit during this tough time. Yeah, it's obviously very different once we're out of the lockdown. Is there projects then that you're doing now with that in mind, or is it all kind of just the lockdown? focus on that and if that's going to be extended yeah no so this this sort of partnership with let's like say with the with the CCG with Holy Shop to Mind and, and the Humber Coast and Vale it's sort of it's been going for the last sort of couple of years before lockdown and uh, we were doing a lot of projects with you know, reminiscence groups uh, and, and sort of coffee corners within care homes working with the dementia groups there and things like that fitness classes for, for, for over 35s and, and sort of helping people that have been involved in, in rugby league uh, as juniors, sort of reconnect with people, with you know with friends that they might have you know not spoken to for a while and just offering a different range of activities for, for a lot of people. Obviously, the difference now with it in the current situation is trying to deliver those projects, but via Zoom, via Teams online, and how we can still have that same impact without doing it face-to-face. So there has been some challenges, but I think we're we're in a really good place and we're delivering as a foundation, as a club at Hull, some really good programmes. So I guess we didn't really go over it. What exactly is a foundation to a sports club? Why are they important? I know that you've worked for Bradford Bulls, Leeds Rhinos. This is your second stint at Hull FC. Yeah. Um, So why is it important for the club's brand to have these foundations? Yeah, the foundations are a massive part of of any sport, really, of any professional sports team. But in rugby league, the, the, I think they're even more more so because of the impact they can have in community. The amount of juniors and people that they can reach in in schools and in the local community is massive. Obviously, you know the end goal is turn them into you know, lifelong lifelong Hull FC fans and get them to the you know to the game and welcome them to be part of the Hull FC family. But the foundation has helped break down that barrier, you know, from meeting those children in, in reception in year one at primary school that have all they've ever known since they were sort of being able to walk is out to kick a football and things like that, but actually to get a rugby ball in the rams and teaching them core skills and get them to a local amateur club is a massive part of the foundation. It's the other, op- uh, the other opportunities that they can offer, not just in sport, but like I say, the, the health and wellbeing side of the point, the education stuff now within colleges, and just helping with the word of the rugby league. You mentioned work with colleges there as well. The foundation at Hull, at least, run kind of modules for students while also giving them a way into coaching or playing while doing a subject as well, in a sense, yeah. while offering a college course. Yeah, that's right. We, you're giving them the opportunity to, to be part of a professional sports club whilst learning and enjoying the game a little bit as well. So that's something our education department at the foundation has, has been fantastic in, especially these last couple of years where we, we've sort of transformed from from uh, working with NEETs uh, and those and those type of people, start to running into a sports college where we're offering uh, we're offering VTECs 
and college courses, basically, um, but also the opportunity to play rugby league at a decent level and, and be in the shop window to to move up the ladder within the black and whites as well. The well-being side of things of what what you do is is that something which you've always had your eye on doing, or is it something which you've kind of just picked up as your career has gone on? It's kind of yeah, I, I picked it up. Basically, our previous health and well-being manager uh, moved on during uh, last year in 2020, and I'd worked closely alongside her, so there was a couple of projects that that crossed over um, the Touch and Pass League that we run at Hull FC. I oversaw that, and it linked in some of the participants that were uh, part of the fitness group that we ran through the health and wellbeing programme. We joined over, so I had an idea of it. Was it something I thought I'd, I'd get into and be as involved in? I didn't at all, and it's opened my eyes, really. All I've really sort of seen is and come through, like I say, at Bradford, at Leeds, is, is the schools programme and the coaching side of things. So for me to sort of sink my teeth into something new, especially in this, you know, this global pandemic and at this time where health and well-being, physical health and mental health and well-being is on everybody's radar at the moment, it was an eye-opener for me, really, and I got to learn some stuff that I'd never, never thought about which is good. So it refreshed me a little bit and uh, and got me to meet a lot of great people in and around Hull and, and sort of the East Riding area and further afield as well. So, yeah. We touched on that you were at Bradford, Leeds and Hull. I, I don't know how much movement goes on in the background of sports clubs like that. Is But is it something like you said, you, you only knew the school things, but was it something different at each club that you were doing or was it yeah, the same uh, kind of remit? No, there was some similarities. Um, so I got involved at Bradford Bulls quite young. Um, so I was a volunteer for a long time. I started coaching when I was a young age and I actually got spotted coaching my local team at Hunter Parkside. And the guys from, from Bradford had come to, to watch some of the players that I was coaching. The feedback I got from the game, they were just impressed with how I was speaking to, to the players. Um, and I say I was only, only young at that time. I was only around... They were about 19 um, that were coaching them. So they were really impressed. I got invited up to the to, to Tong, to Bradford Bull, to their scholarship session. And there was a couple of guys in there that I'd known from the old previous service area, the old Leeds and District programme. Uh, you city competition, they used to be at the end of the amateur season. So there was a couple of people I was aware of coaches up there. And I led one of the sessions. I got thrown in the deep end with an under-16s. It was, it was Adam O'Brien at the time was part of that under-16s side and obviously he's at Huddersfield uh, now uh, and going really well. So I wasn't too much older than him, actually. Like I say, I was only three years older than, than Adam O'Brien at the time. So it was a tough step up for me, but uh, I must have done a, a good job because they invited me up to the scholarship. So I did two years voluntary with the scholarship side. And then in 2010, um, the RFL secured a Sport England pot of money to uh, for each of the professional club foundations to employ some community rugby league coaches that were part of the foundation that would go into the primary schools and help recruit players that had joined amateur clubs and help boost the amateur game at, at grassroots level. And I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was great. Obviously, I thought you know full time sporting environment. It, you know it was great. But again, it was it was a massive learning curve for me because um, I come from working with elite players, if you like, top academy players and scholarship players, even though at a young age. So then I was running around with, in primary schools, we year two, under sevens. and People just <laughs> not listening to you. Kids are just not listening to you. Organised chaos. I say this every time, mate. I take my hat off to any of those under sevens, under eight coaches out there because, you know, they're, 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 they're the start. They're the first people that get the, the kids on the ladder and, and, and help them to become, giving them dreams of becoming professional rugby league players. So I did that for, I worked at Bradford for, for six years and again, worked with different people in the foundation, um, got to know, got my name around the schools and, and the amateur clubs. It were at the time where the Bulls sort of, it would, it would come to the back end of the um, of the success years, really, at the Bulls at around 2009, 2010, and there were a lot of transition years. But were a massive part of my apprenticeship. There were some fantastic people there that I will always be grateful for, for passing on their knowledge and uh, and getting me getting me involved and giving me those opportunities at an early age. You know, I was lucky enough to 
at uh, head coach uh, an under 16s academy at, at 24 years old, which were brilliant for me. And there were some great players in there that have gone on again onto the onto the student, uh, sorry, onto the professional game now. And it sort of I realised when all those people had left, all my mentors had gone, it was maybe time for me to, to look elsewhere. And I got the opportunity in 2014 to come over to Hull first time. And it was somewhere where I was completely unknown. Um, obviously, Hull's a hotbed of rugby league and I knew it from, from playing at amateur and things like that. But I was completely unknown. And I quickly realised that all the things that worked for me at Bradford, all the programmes that we'd done, didn't necessarily work in that whole area. It took a bit of time for me and I picked up different ideas and ways of doing things. And again, there were different mentors. And that was a bit of a, a tough learning curve because I come in thinking I knew everything and I didn't. You know, I was the outsider. I was the I was the Wesley. And I'm probably still known as the Wesley, actually, the <laughs> West Yorkshire lad. Um, but yeah, there were still some really good people that, Eventually, well, you know, the welcoming with open arms. Some good people within the club, the head coach at the time, Lee Radford. I was lucky enough to be on a coaching course with him a couple of months before that, so I got to know him. And but he was fantastic for my development uh, and the guys in there as well. But the foundation at the time was at Hull FC was in a bit of a transition as well. Um, there were a lot of good people that had moved on to different roles in the club and not really been replaced in that foundation. So. Even though, again, I said I was quite young, you know, mid-20s, I was, I was seen as a senior lad, really, to a group of people there. And then I got to obviously do the university stuff for yourself, which was a step up for me. I, while at Bradford, I worked with the University of Bradford. And like you said, the, with the university game, people come from all over the place. Um, so by night, I was working with scholarship and academy lads, but some of the evenings I were at University of Bradford dealing with lads that had never held the rugby ball and these were 19 to 23 year old lads that had never touched they were just you know fancied a good drink and and thought you know what I'll give rugby league a try so for me then to join Hull Uni who were in the Premier Division that were a big step up for me because there were a lot of lads there that had been involved in in you know great academy setups and scholarship setups at Hull and OKR obviously I got to know yourself within that within that team as well, mate. And um, again, you are welcoming with open arms, but it will only occur for me. I remember playing Leeds Beckett, obviously, for those who know the student game, Leeds Beckett, you know, the top side, and I've been for, for 15 years or so now. Um, Northumbria starting that power changes changed a little bit. But yeah, Leeds Beckett, I remember playing Leeds Beckett at Leeds Beckett and getting 72 points put on us. Uh, and we had some of the were some of the greatest you know academy players in Hull at the time as well. So that it was a learning curve for me how I handled that and how I dealt with that. And then yeah, it, I got the opportunity to go back over to West Yorkshire and join Lee Rhinos, which they just won the treble at the time as well. So you know the city was was dancing. It were you know it were all about the Rhinos, the school stuff. It was the, yeah, the Rhinos found There wasn't much for uh, the football club at that time. Neither. No, there wasn't. Like 2015, 2016. Um, I had a few friends who said that Leeds was now a rugby league city at that point. Yeah. And it was because Leeds United were just in the championship and Leeds Rhinos, as you said, just won, just won the treble. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it were an opportunity I, don't, I, I couldn't turn down. So I went back over and again, because of the Leeds-Bradford rivalry that I had, uh, that was obviously the derby, the West Yorkshire derby. As I knew a lot of the people that were in that foundation and in the club. So again, it, that were an easy, easier transition back in, not like when I first come over to all the year before. But the Rhinos Foundation, the organisation, it's mass, it's massive. And like I say, at the time, bigger, bigger than Leeds United, bigger than the football club in a major city, was a massive achievement for rugby league, and it, it was easy. And I say it was easy because the Rhinos brand so strong because of the success it was easy to walk into schools and be recognised as a rhinos and everybody you know hung on every word you said and there were a lot of kids playing the game and wanted to play rugby league and like I say it found it easy that way but the challenges was that because I come from being a senior lad the year before at Hull and the experience I had at Bradford thought I'd get that at, at Leeds and it didn't I was obviously just one of one of the guy and, and sort of my my progression to where I wanted to go into coaching and things was, was blocked by 
had some very good people again, and I'm using that a lot. But there is in rugby league, there is some very, very good people. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to be in and around that sport, and there is some very good people that I'm lucky to be to be friends with and, and colleagues with. But I kept in touch the year that I had at Hull. I kept in touch with a lot of people, which were great. And it, it shows kind of the, the impact it had on me that 12 months that were over here. And at the end of uh, the end of the 2016 season, beginning of 2017 season, I got the opportunity to come back over to Hull. Again, from moving around, picking up some great ideas that worked at Leeds and, and programmes that have gone well, we were able to run them in Hull. So it were kind of... I've gone from being the young lad again to actually a more senior senior guy. There have been a few people that have changed in the Hull FC Foundation. It was a lot more stable. There were a lot more going on. And, you know, again, I was welcomed with open arms and, um, and yeah, the rest is history. And hopefully I'm, I'm here to stay for a long time. I'm enjoying myself. And, uh, you know, it's in a good place is the, the Hull FC Foundation and the work that we're doing at the moment. Yeah, I find that really interesting how you challenged yourself to go to FC, to Hull, from you realised your time was up. And I think out of sport and in all walks of life, some people are happy to stay. And I think yeah. kind of that moving on. And like you said yourself, you thought you knew everything. And then when you got to Hull, you didn't. Yeah. And I think that's a really key, important thing to take from there. Now, I also find it really interesting that I didn't know that you started at 19 at Bradford. Yeah. Uh, for that, so that's that was interesting. So you mentioned the foundation does a lot of work with school level, like primary school mm. level, and you mentioned that it's difficult managing with seven or eight-year-olds, but what is the sort of thing that you put on for children of that age to get them to support FC or support Rhinos wherever you were yeah. at the time? The first... <laughs> It's basically getting on their wavelength, but we want to make the sessions as fun and engaging as possible. So we always have this conversation with coaches. You go week one, how do you score? Oh, fantastic. Fantastic because you were you were a new guy in there. You're somebody that you've ne- they've never met before. But as it becomes a routine into week three, week five, week seven, so on, and you're in there all year, you want to keep that enjoyment. You want to keep the kids engaged as much as you can. So fun-filled sessions, you know, mini skills, games, things like that, keeping them going. The tag element in primary school, I think, fantastic because it levels the playing field. Obviously, at that age, they're still the fastest kid, the biggest kid. And I probably that same in any sport, really. But the tag element evens it up massively and it promotes a bit more skill and evasion and, and looking to find space. So we do a lot of fun games around that, um, around that side of thing. We tie in coordination, balance. Uh, we've got our dance programme now at Hull FC up and running, so we do. I'm not a dancer. Oh, oh, uh, it's I not me. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to see a video then. I wanted to see something. Oh, It's not me, but yeah, we, we do some work on that about footwork and movement, and um, and that's real. We see that real beneficial at, at that age at grassroots level. The biggest thing for us is then to signpost those kids to the local amateur club, and that's where, as work that we do with the school, teachers to help us push that and, and, and promote that but also the parents and the guardians as well because we need you know they need to know what's going on what their kids doing in school I remember I said when we first started we used to give a leaflet out and the amount of times a leaflet would end up at the bottom of a bag and then at the end of the school year they'd find the parents and guardians would find it as the point out of the bag so trying to actually do something, we you know we, we do a, we've got a successful assembly program at Hullity that helps promote and push the amateur clubs around Hull and the East Riding area, and that's something that we've I found that worked that worked at Leeds and also worked at the back end of my time at Bradford as well, where they physically see it, they know what it's about. The festivals that we used to run or COVID, we, we'd host it at the amateur clubs. We'd invite the parents and guardians to come down to. They knew where the kids wanted to go. They knew how far away it was from the house. And, and and most importantly, they were going to be meeting the coaches who were going to take them on that next part of their, their journey as a rugby league player. But yeah, the main thing is trying to make it as fun and engaging as possible, really, and get them to have that that buzz of being a rugby league player. And that's that's boys and girls as well, mate, because actually at tag level at primary school, some of the girls are fantastic and they run rings around the boys. It's always our play oh, will be outside school and blah, blah, blah. Everyone runs rings around me, so it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> um, but no, I guess 
on that with the community clubs, there's lots of community clubs in Hull. There's lots in Leeds, lots in Bradford. How do you find balancing out the... Because some, some will have where there's two community clubs really close to a school. Yeah. So how is it that you balance out where to point kids in that sense? Yeah. Communication plays a massive part with that. So, you know, we, we have regular contact and meetings with all the amateur clubs. The biggest thing for us is, you know, the a lot of these kids are getting too hit as well. Obviously, we've got another professional rugby league club in the city in OKR who, you know, we do some work with them through this role now with the sport and wellbeing. You know, we, we do some joint projects, but it's communication with them as well to make sure that, look, we're not, you know, overworking with the same kids and things like that. Not you've got your patch and we've got ours, but there's a bit of a gentleman's agreement of where we're going to go and, and what we're going to target for schools and the areas. And that's the same with the with the primary schools and the secondary schools with the amateur clubs because you have you've got a lot of amateur clubs in in a small proximity to each other. So it's about us having that communication, that understanding. That look, you know, even though it's a you know a whole wide festival, for instance, you might have some kids that actually live closer to to Westall, but go to a school that's closer to Hull White. So we make sure that we cover all those bases and we, we advertise both clubs and we give the option then for the schools to choose, uh, sorry, the kids to choose where they where they want to go and what they want to do. Our community coaches, you know, they're, they're attached with some of the clubs. So uh, one of us coaches has uh, Might and Warriors, for instance, uh, and West also before the before the COVID was actively, you know, was at training sessions at Might and at training sessions at, Westall, so it was a familiar face for those kids, depending where they wanted to go. So we're trying to give the kids as much option and we get the clubs to buy in and say, you know, that's fine. As long as we're being fair for everybody, then that's what we want to do. Yeah, that's really, really interesting because I went to school in Huddersfield. And yeah. so when I first started playing rugby, it was kind of like, oh, where do I go? Oh, well, Ellen drew up the road, but I lived in Greenland and Greenland had a team and yeah, it's kind, yeah. kind of confusing in that sense. Um, yeah. But I chose Ireland, and I don't, I don't think Greenland had a team at my age, actually. So you're not only working for the foundation, you're also the England University's head coach for Rugby League. Yeah. So how do those two intertwine? Do you take some of the stuff from the foundation into the England University's camp? Does some of the stuff that you take from the camp go into the foundation? Yeah, no... Um... Obviously, I'm very honoured to to have that role as a as an England head coach, regardless of what level it's at. You know, universities. It's it's been fantastic for my my personal development as a coach over the last few years. But yeah, it's it's sort of a, a partnership that works within the club. So I'm also uh, the University of Hull coach as well, uh, to do with a, a partnership. Uh, obviously, a lot bigger between Hull FC and the university as well. Uh, and of course, you tell yourself, Thomas, once upon a time uh, at Hull Uni. It's it's the, the work alongside each other because it is it obviously obviously as they come through the college program and go into into further education, um, they have the opportunity then and that direct link with a local university in Hull. With the England stuff, it's a chance for me to sort of progress myself in, in that coaching environment. There's also the opportunity potentially with I know they're not around at the moment, but 18 months ago, the reserves, it was a good pathway. And we actually had a couple of players that were in our reserve grade that were part of that England University's programme as well and a chance for them to, to play on uh, outside the academy. Yeah, there's a few players who have gone into the professional game of rugby league who have come through the university path. Is it something which you think we'll see more of going forward? So off the top of my head, Alex Wormsley, Rob Warrenty, Obviously, didn't quite make it to Super League, but he's had a successful career in the Championship. Yeah, yeah. Is that something which you think maybe the RFL can look at to improve that pathway? I'd like to think so, yeah. And I'd like to think it's a viable option for, for a lot of players. The academies at the moment, obviously, it's with no reserve grade. You get into the end of an under-19 season and it's, uh, you know, you're either in a first-team environment or, unfortunately, you're going to find another club or even back to amateur. So having that university game, which is open age, it potentially, if you're doing a three-year court or foundation year, maybe four years, it gives you that extra three, four years to, to develop 
especially with the cells at Hull FC, um, with the coaching tactic, and the style of coaching and things like that. It's it's a good way for them for the the students to learn the same things. Like I said, there, there's been a lot of good players that have gone on. Alex Warnes, obviously, has gone on to be an England and Great Britain international from the student game. But there's a lot of very, very talented players that are in the championship as well that have gone through that education pathway. You know, there is the academic side of things yeah. in there and some very good players and that England recruiting players from all over the country as well into that England programme, from Exeter, Reading, Northumbria, you know, all the way up there, uh, Lancaster, there's, you know, you're touching all the corners of, of England. So there's that opportunity to recruit players from further afield that might not have been on, on pro clubs radar and given that opportunity to show what they can do. Yeah, I think um, it's something which we see in America is that sort of pathway and I'm hoping to be able to discuss it later on in the series. But going back to when you were at Bradford, you mentioned you did two years voluntary. Yeah, yeah. So how, how was that kind of, if I understood it correctly, you were volunteering while coaching the scholarship? Lads. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. So how how was that balance of you doing an everyday job, I'm assuming, and then volunteering in your spare time to coach, as you said, elite players? Yeah, um, you won't think my math skills aren't the best, but I, I used to work at, at HSBT, <laughs> banking, first direct group. Um, so I was doing that straight out of straight out of sixth form and a full-time job with that. But my passion were always in rugby league and, and, and coaching. It was, it was my escape. I, I still do. I love, I love my job. I love what I do. I love being involved in, the, in this great game. And again, some fantastic people and some the tours and stuff through the students and things have been great. But yeah, it was my escape from my everyday life, from my job to go and coach. And just felt privileged to be around that coaching setup. I mean, the coaching team at the time, Steve McNamara was head coach, Basil Richards, Lee St. Hilaire, assistant coaches. Paul Medley was uh, the, the head of youth there. Um, and then my mentors in the scholarship and academy was was Jason Keneally and um, and my father and my dad uh, <laughs> was there as the reserves coach at the time as well. I just had a real, really good apprenticeship. But the coaching staff there as well, Steve Mark, Basil and, and Lee sent away, you know, they, they were at every academy session as well. So I, I, like I was learning from the top. It were an open door sort of nights at the round table where everybody had the say. I remember once actually coming in, and again, I'd been there maybe four or five weeks, I think it was that. And again, I was still just doing a bit of warm-up, putting the cones out. A lot of it was standing and just correcting individuals. Uh, and it was a, a reserve session that was going on as well at the time on the other side of the 3G at Tong. And, um, and Basil just says, oh, Junior. So, you know, Tay Junior. Junior, what do you think of this? They've got a session all planned and they'd already sorted it. They'd already discussed it before I got there. And But asking for my input, like this, you know, this 19-year-old kid, but I felt a part of it. You know, yeah. I felt a part of that setup and, and opinion and my thoughts were valued and that was brilliant. Um, that was brilliant for me. Um, it gave me a lot of confidence. And like I say, probably at the time, when I look back, maybe a little bit too too much confidence when I felt like I knew because I'd been and learning from them, I thought I knew everything. But I quickly learned that, you you, you know, you never stop learning and you can always up, up, update yourself, upgrade yourself. And, and and the game changes every year as well as as it's, as you've seen at top flight. Yeah, and I guess you've taken that into your work with the foundation of stepping up, learning the well-being side and the sports side. Yeah. You, uh, it might have taken a while for you to realise, as you've said, but always learning is something which everyone can always do. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like the, the schools have changed, like things in schools and how they, you know, how they deliver PE and the curriculums and things like that. That's something we've had to adapt and change to not just the current, the current situation, but even before, before COVID, you know, it, it changed from when I first started with the school stuff back in 2010, the university game, the college game, that that's improved massively because the amount of players that have come through, scholarship setups and academy setups and are now into that environment you know the game changes so you know I've been I've been very lucky to to be on that on that journey really with everybody and, and sort of see how that's changed to see how the game's changed and, and and learn from that so you mentioned that you learned a lot of stuff in your working career through 
bulls in the community and foundation. Is there anything from your coaching roles at uni, at the scholarship level that you're taking now into England universities or that you'd like to take forward in your next role that way? Yeah, definitely. I think, like I said before, you know, doing the university, you, you don't you don't know what you're going to get. You're going to get, you know, 19-year-old young adults that have never played rugby league before. And that was the that was the challenge for me, where I was dealing with a complete different level of players, players who have played in academy and played the game since they were six year old, to those to those you know brand new newbies. Where I was doing what we're doing in the primary schools in, in grip and carry with with under eight, you know, which is a rugby ball. We hold a rugby ball like this. I was doing that same session then on an evening with these 19, 20, 21 year old lads because they'd, ne- they'd never done that. Um, I think what what stood me in good stead and what I have learned is how to work with different age groups and change my tone and how I speak and the language that I'll use, uh, not too much colourful language, but obviously the terminology that I'll use with with those different age groups. And that's from that university game. What I also like about the university is you get a brand new batch of players each year. So your team changes every year. You could have a successful group of players the end of like the third year they could all leave and you've got a brand new bag of fresh faced 19 year old kids and you've got you've got a three year cycle with them again but the freshers obviously the recruitment process that you know it adds to every year and at Bradford Uni like I say it was it was an academic it wasn't really a sporting university uh, I had a lot of lads that were on engineering courses and chemical engineering and things like that but I was lucky enough to at the time I was there to have a group of players that for whatever reason, all decided to go to University of Bradford at the same time. From from uh, players from Cumbria, play a couple of players from Leeds as well. That just decided we all want to go there. When I worked at the Rhinos and I did the Leeds Trinity University team, again I joined where it was at, it was at end of that transition year where that the senior heads had sort of just left, and I had about nine or ten lads from from Stanningley uh, uh, and from Milford that again had played with each other since we were six years old and just happened to go to Leeds Trinity at the same time. So I know I speak about being lucky with the opportunities I've had, but I've kind of been lucky with the players that I've been, that I've had the privilege of working with and they've been, you know, I'm so grateful that they've bought into what I wanted as well. So, so you mentioned there that Bradford and Leeds Trinity you were looking with the players that came in and they were one-team universities yeah. How did you find when you got to Hull and there was two teams? Uh, yeah. Uh, one I didn't know because I just thought everybody had one team. So I remember my first, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember my first meeting with the president at the time, with a guy called Matty Dawley, the first team captain, James Deaton, uh, yourself and, uh, and Stu Smith as the involved with the second team. And yeah, I remember sitting down and the first thing I said to you was, right, well, you know, we're all going to train together. Regardless if you were a second team of last year or you were you were captain at first team, we're all in it together because I knew that on a Wednesday, you know, depending where you were travelling, you know, you're in that Premier League, you could be in Newcastle, you could be uh, in Nottingham at the time or over at Liverpool, John Moores. And, and lads are not going to get out of lectures on a Wednesday, so your team's going to change. And I needed players that might have been involved with the second team to step up and know exactly what they're doing. And I remember saying to you, it's that door effect that if you're not pulling your weight and you're not performing in that first team environment, you know, you will play seconds. And I remember you all laughing at me and just sort of saying, it won't happen. We have this every year. And I like to think I stuck to my guns because I remember dropping James Eaton down into the second team. Uh, just I remember to, there being a lot of um, a lot of fight by James Deaton, who is going to be a guest on this show, hopefully. Um, <laughs> But there, there, so I have to be careful what I say. But there, were, there was definitely a lot of fight for one particular fixture on me not going with the first from him. Yes, and uh, yes. you saying, I think the re- the reasons that you were given were I knew the system. I could I could go for one, and you knew you'd get a hundred percent from me. I think was your reasoning. Yeah, I, mate, I remember it's closed day, and that's the hardest thing from. I think it was from previous where, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, you, you know, they had, they had a coach, but he was more more like a babysitter. 
and you guys sort of picked the team as as a committee, and you did what you wanted to do. We was there, whereas you know I, I'm very much hands on with it. I'm not; it's not my way or no way. But you know, I listen to ideas from the captain, and and that's why we had those regular sort of meetings because I want people to buy in what I want and understand. But you know, at the end of the day, it was my call I wanted, and stand by it, mate. You, even though you were a, a second team player at that point in your University rugby career. Second team captain. Sorry, second team captain. Sorry, Tommy. Yeah. Um, that's why I was in the meetings. That's why you were in the meetings, yeah. I knew that I knew that I could trust you to, you know, right, so I need, you know, for instance, the player you were replacing needed a, you know, 15, 15, 20 minute breather. Could I trust Tom Tommy Oste to to do a job in that position for that, you know, to cover him when I get to breath back? And the answer was yes. And you know, again, correct me if I'm wrong. I will prove them right. You did the job. Oh. Uh, I did. I did the job on the bench because you didn't bring me on. Is is the uh, is the exact <laughs> scenario of how that happened? Um, so I, I will prove you wrong on that one. Uh, I think you were the, we, we had a player. What, you had a you were the right man for that bench spot, though. You were the right yeah, man. I, I won't. I won't going to complain because I was just happy that we won. <laughs> to be honest, lost her away. Gloucester away, yeah, it was it was a long trip. Yeah. I think what I've learned from from coaching those, you know, being in those environments and, and being on on student tours around, you know, been around the world, you know, some places I never thought I'd ever go visit. Um, just learn to adapt and learn to sort of treat everybody as uh, the same as I can, really, rather than an individual and try to bring that team ethos together. That's what I've learned. But I've learned to sort of how I manage and, and how I speak to speak to different levels of people. So we've discussed you work with coaching at universities, at scholarship. We've discussed you working with the foundation. You've also done some work with the GB Pioneers. Um, yeah. What, what are the GB Pioneers for those who don't know? So the, yeah, the, the GB Pioneers, it's a, it's a student team and it's a development squad that um, they go to places, obviously, around the world, Europe mostly, North Africa and things, but they, they try, and, try and play the inaugural representative game. So it's for a developing nation where they're wanting to get that international status and GB Pioneers was known to go in there just before they got obviously signed off as a fully fledged international team and play the first international game against their rep side. But because it's a development dog, we do work with local schools. We take part in some joint sessions with them and try and upskill. Uh, we do some referee development as well. But like I say, they go all over the world and I was lucky to do I was lucky to do four tours, one as an assistant, and then I got three as a as a head coach. But what was unique about that is that it was it was a 20-man playing squad that it was one person from a different university. So you each year was 20 different universities, but it didn't matter what level you were playing at. You got sort of put forward and selected on the work that you'd done as a student for the university. You know, so involved with rugby league, it could be, a, you know, you, you were a, a social secretary, for instance, and but you had a big emphasis on promoting rugby league in, in that university set up in that institution or you actually didn't play rugby league you played maybe a rugby union role but you were, your interest was in sports development and coaching so it provided you that pathway so it was your universities put forward a player each year or two or three players and they were selected then on, on the back of the, of the TV really you only have one training session before you go away on tour as well so you've got 20 lads who you have never met before and they've all got, got to gel in that one session yeah, they've got a gel and we, we do a training weekend. We we met on the Friday evening. I was lucky that it was in Hull. So the tour, the tour manager, Steve Curtis, who's also uh, heavily involved in the University of Hull and a former rugby league player as well and himself, we hosted it in Hull. So you had 20 lads that had never met each other before all descend on Hull. Some of them had never actually been north of, <laughs> north of Watford. Um, so that were, that were always interesting. And we got there on the Friday afternoon we did all the introductions got to know each other a few icebreakers and things it, it was the same every year a lot of nerves from new staff that involved I remember my first year you know I'd, I'd only known really the head coach a bloke called Steve Hardesty who you know ironically for me now he's he's the um, 
player welfare manager at Huddersfield Giants. So it's you know it's it's some of the stuff that I'm interested in now on what he's doing. But Steve Addison gave me that opportunity to be involved in that. So I went to Morocco, one of the hottest places I've ever been to in my life. So watching and trying to coach it were hard enough for these boys who were running around and playing were a nightmare. But I remember the first thing he said to me was, whatever you think of a Great Britain tour, forget it, because <laughs> it's not what you're expecting whatsoever. He didn't go into any detail. He just said, whatever you've got in your head, throw it out the window. And it was, we got there and uh, the training pitch was, there were no grass. Obviously, one of the hottest places in the world, it would just, it were a dried up, the dried up football pitch with no, with no post protectors, no grass on it. Um, and we were into it. Um, they tried to put sprinklers on to soften the ground up when we got there, but it did nothing. Um, no, so, if, if anything, that would surely have made it worse a little. Well, for I think the physio, the, the physio, uh, Mitch, his first night, the amount of bloody weeping wounds and burns and scratches on knees and elbows from session were, were horrendous. But yeah, so we did so we did the uh, we did the initial training weekend and then the week after that's when you go on the tour. So you've met each other that weekend in Hull, you're then meeting on the air, at the airport the next Saturday morning and off you go. And you go for a 10-day tour, 10, 10 days or two weeks, a couple of the tours what. But it's one of them where you end up mates for life. There's still people I speak to from that Morocco tour. You know, I, I haven't seen since physically. But obviously through social media and numbers and stuff, and we still talk about. Oh, do you remember? You know, the, you know this story. Do you remember when we did this, and what about when that happened? And the guy, like I say, I was an assistant coach on the Morocco and the Ghana one. Uh, again, never, I've never thought of going to Ghana. Never thought of going to to West Africa. I didn't know the new rugby, knew anything about rugby. But honestly, they were so welcoming the development officer there at the time, a bloke called Sylvester, would you, he couldn't do enough. We would check like kings. We couldn't do enough for us. We, we would check like the full on, like you, you've heard the story when, you know, Great Britain went down under to, uh, and they did, you know, went to PNG. Yeah. And the people like running towards the bus and stuff like that. We, we had an armed escort when we travelled from, like from places, we had an armed escort because we were seen as that sort of level. We were just obviously a group of students from all over <laughs> from all over England uh, and a coaching staff that just had a passion for developing. But yeah, to, to, to those people, we were seen as, as sportsmen, as elite players. And I remember playing Ghana. And again, so these are open age and I've got some, I didn't have some young lads in there, some some young kids. And we put a big score on them, like skill-wise and knowledge of the game. But God, we, we couldn't train for two days afterwards. Like, I, I had, I had players in that that played national league level that played open age against blokes and had been used to getting bashed around and a few el- you know a few elbows in face and stuff like that. But like, they couldn't walk, like couldn't walk after the game. They just physically whacked us all over the field. Yeah, I'm assuming um, the pitch didn't help neither. Just trying to give them a little. Mate, kind you, of actually, you think that, but it was it was lush, it was tropical, beautiful grass, Fair. beautiful. It was beautiful. Um, but yeah, so you, you you're also while you're doing that, you do when you do the development sessions with the teams, you know, there's, there's a language barrier there as well. You know, when we went to went to Bosnia in twenty Bosnia and Herzegovina in twenty fifteen. And again, you hear the stories of Bosnia, but beautiful country. And again, welcomed with open arms. Uh, the cults were fantastic. And it, uh, the lads again on that tour, you know, I still speak to I got a Christmas text message from from one of the lads from that tour who um who lives down in down in Wales, a Swansea lad, and then you know just you just end up friends for life with it. It's it's great, but the language barrier that 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 stood me in good stead. I've had, like I say, I've been lucky enough to be involved in a lot of different uh, establishments and a lot of different environments. But the GB pioneers on the work that they do around the world for developing the game is fantastic. But again, it's providing the opportunity for these students as well that might not get to play at the highest level. But they can say they've represented the country, they've played for Great Britain, um, and they've left a lasting impression then on on those people that we've we've played against in those countries. Yeah, that's I think obviously rugby league isn't a huge game across the world at the moment. I think the GB pioneers have and are doing a lot of good stuff there. I've seen Turkey has really kicked up a gear in the past few years since yeah. the GB pioneers went there. I can't say that. I've seen much of Morocco, Ghana. I know have with the African Nations tournament that they've that started yeah. with Nigeria. Yeah, uh, really 
kind of leading the way in that in that sense at the moment. And once this is over, once that's that, if that can kick up again and start gaining momentum again, it'll be really good for yeah, the definitely league in that sense. Yeah, definitely. So you know, Hungary, Hungary, Hungary is a place that I've been lucky enough to visit uh, a few times now. Off the back of the going to the Pioneer Tour to Hungary, and they're now in the Emerging Nations setup. And you know, they they went to uh, they took part in the Emerging Nations World Cup in at the back end of 2017, beginning of 2018. That was massive for them. Previous places they went to Greece, the Pioneers, uh, a few years obviously before my time, but obviously Greece are now part of. The, the full World Cup, the full international World Cup, yeah. uh, and the players that have come out of out of Greece that are playing around the world now as well. So yeah, obviously Greece have had a player playing in League One, who's uh, I think it's Bastas was his name. Yeah, and yeah. So that's obviously been huge for Greek for Greek rugby. Yeah, yeah. And I know that it hasn't. I don't think there was a tour there, but it's been re- it's been really interesting for me how Canada and Jamaica have kind of grown in that sense. Um, but that's a different conversation and a different topic, really. Yeah. So, yeah. Final question really is what does the future hold for you then going forward? You said that you want to stay at FC Hope for a long time, but is there aspirations to go coaching at a higher level if there is of England University sort of thing? Yeah, obviously the, the professional game, I was lucky enough and I think I'm conscious I've said lucky because I do I feel really lucky in the opportunities that I've had in such a young uh, young age I was I was at the right place at the right time and um, I feel real lucky and and privileged for that but yeah obviously the professional game I'd love to be you know involved with after my time with England University is done Um, I've obviously had a taste you know the last 18 months I was involved with Hollis with the reserve grade with, with Gareth Ellis uh, and with uh, with John McCracken as well, and that was fantastic for me. That was brilliant working with those kind of pl- those kind of people and those players. You know, I had the opportunity while I worked at Leeds Rhinos to to sort of develop myself, and I worked. At, I was part of Keith Cougars reserve setup as well for twelve months, um, which was a big learning curve for me there as well. Uh, but again, some really good people. Yeah, I'd love to to get back involved in the you know in the professional game and things and and see what I can you know. I'm, few years older now I say I'm learning all the time as well but yeah I'd like to be involved coaching wise further in the professional game job wise you know I'm, I'm I'm really happy I'm you know learning a lot of things I said these last sort of 12 months with everything that's gone on I've learned some and I've met some very very interesting people and some people that you know are doing a lot of good around the city on mental health and physical health and well-being and I'm hoping to learn as much as I can from them and and do the same and help support that and add value to that awesome yeah good luck to you in in that sense and hopefully see you in the professional game at some point you're still you're still young especially for a coach anyway so we'll go on to the the final three questions so uh, what's your what's your go-to cheat meal or go-to takeaway (laughs) <laughs> if, um, if people normally listen to this they'll they'll be loads they'll, they'll, they'll throw out at you but my favourite man my go-to is Chinese I, I could have a Chinese Any every night of the week dish? I have a mixture um, obviously the, the classic sweet and sour chicken Hong Kong style or, uh, or Cantonese style as you like it um, but I like I like the duck I like the aromatic duck uh, I've been known to polish off Pancakes. No, no salt and, and pepper chips. No salt and pepper fries. No, or like that. No. no salt and pepper fries. I like special fried rice and uh, uh, chicken and cashew nuts is quite nice as well. I think that's my healthy tag because I've got cashew nuts in there. So and there's plenty of bamboo and bamboo sprouts and things like that as well. So uh, health, health um, kick, mate. <laughs> Marmite, love it or hate it? Hate it. Hate it with a passion I'm, keep, I'm keeping this as a tally throughout the season the marmite one yeah favourite pizza topping Texas barbecue stuffed crust oh very specific yeah very specific I'm, I'm, not, not, I'm, not, not, I'm, not, I'm not even I'm not even sure yet. I'm pretty certain that's only available at one outlet um, it, is <laughs> it is indeed yeah um, so yeah um, that's everything really Richard so I want to say thank you again for joining me and taking the time out of your evening to come and answer some questions and let people know what 
foundations do for sports clubs and why they're important. And I found it really interesting, really, how how that's done and what you do. Uh, I want to say thank you and good luck for the future. No, mate, it's great to be on. You know, I appreciate you asking me and it was quite good, actually, for me to look back, reminisce a little bit at some of the stuff that I've I've been involved in. But, mate, what you, I just want to say, mate, what you're doing here with these podcasts are fantastic and I wish you all the best with that. I look forward to listening to the future guests as well, pal. So thank you. Thanks again for having me on. No worries. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. And that wraps up the end of episode three. Once again, I'd like to thank Richard for taking the time out to talk to me and I wish him all the best for the future. I really enjoyed that episode, finding out about some of the work sports club foundations do. They clearly do some great work in their communities to bring fans, people into their respective sports and clubs. Whether it's rugby league, football, cricket or whichever sport you prefer, most clubs have foundations these days. If you want to find out more about what your local sports club foundation does, or you want help finding a community club for your child, or, or even for yourself, you can usually find the foundation's contact details through your team's official website, and they should be able to help. We also heard a lot more from Richard than just information about the Hull FC Foundation. I think it's fair to say that he's extremely passionate about rugby league. That really came across to me when talking to him. Whether it was about his coaching career, doing work through the foundation, or trying to grow the game with the GB pioneers. I really liked most that he has constantly challenged himself and hasn't been afraid to step out of his comfort zone in aid to develop and further his understanding of subjects he didn't know as much about, all in order to progress. I think that's a quality we should all strive to have if we want to progress. I think we all do. But with that in mind, we'll call it a day today and I want to thank you again for listening and see you next time here on the Backroom Staff Podcast. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast on your chosen podcast player or you can keep up to date with the latest podcast releases by following the Backroom Staff Podcast on Twitter and Instagram using the following handle, BKRM Staff.